spokenly. He lurked in the shadows, waiting and hoping she wouldn't take a different room. This was a usual room. He knew that. He knew her. Ghost of Me, the new book by Amanda Steele, can be found at Amazon, Kobo, Waterstones and many, many other places. Spokenly. Hi guys, it's Andy N. Thanks today for downloading or streaming yet another episode of Spoken Label. As you may or may not be aware, Spoken Label was started in the beginning of 2006, and currently we have well over 150 sessions recorded since then. Although you can find it on various networks, the full archive is available for streaming and downloading at Spoken Label. Full stop, bandcamp.com. It is a free download or free stream in there. But obviously, if you feel like chucking me a few pennies that way, it'd be eternally grateful to help me keep this podcast going and keep improving my equipment, etc. Enjoy. Speak to you soon. Bye bye. Spoken Label. Hi guys, Andy N. Spoken Label. Back in the house on the Friday night as well. Now, I've got a dear friend of us today and not spoke to her. We've been chancellor for a good 20 minutes before, so I've not spoke to her for ages. And it's a lovely lady. I met, met her. What? I'm going to give her name away now, Sara Colano. Sara, when did we first meet? About two years ago, was it? It was a couple of years back, wasn't it? Um, I think it was a speakeasy. Was yeah, it, it was because it was because um, it was a couple of years back because. Um, we had a, a long story short speaking, we had a one or two nights when nobody came basically and I went and put advertised it on Instagram and you you found out the night through Instagram somehow for the tag in probably and contact me like reading there and I remember you coming down to it with one of your friends and that was what what two years two and a half years ago was it two years ago now yeah at least yeah. two at least yes at least years. at least two because it was only last time last time we we saw, I actually saw you was in Christmas for the speakeasy back in 2019 when you brought your son and daughter with you, wasn't it? And blimey, I'm just flies, doesn't it, really? So <laughs> now, obviously, Sarah, I know you, of course, really well. There may be people here that don't know you, and I don't know why they shouldn't know you because you're lovely. So tell people, obviously, look a bit about yourself as a writer, where it all came from briefly, and we'll start from there. Okay, well, um, I started writing poems and I've just sort of had them published all over the place now probably 40 50 of them published here and there and everywhere different journals and things and um I've also done quite a bit of kind of reading performance as well so different literary events and festivals I did that one with you the Manchester um Oh, oh that was the big tents. Yeah, oh yeah. And plus, do you remember as well? You did that one over at the school, didn't we? Over in Alexandra Park. Oh yes, we did. The summer of 2019, and oh, raining. Yeah. Oh, that was one of the most dangerous gigs I've ever done. That because I remember going on stage. I think you were before us, weren't you? And you went on stage, and you were stood on stage reading. And every time you stepped up one about two feet one way sparks were flying off the actual pieces yeah, it was soaked the stage yeah. was wet so all yeah. these tables and things were yeah it was yeah it was hairy scary that day um but yeah so all that kind of thing and then um i i did a podcast a poetry podcast with um uh 
a broadcaster. They're called um, alternative re uh, alternative stories and fake realities. Yeah, I saw. Yeah, we saw that, and we. I remember your piece. You had a your little short story in that, didn't you? Brilliant. Yeah. Um, so he, so the guy that runs this podcast, Chris, he he found me on uh, Twitter, I think it was, and he had a link to my YouTube, and he said, "Do you want to do a couple of poems?" Um, and then from there, um, he said, "Have you ever thought about just writing short stories or prose or audio drama?" I said, "Honestly, I haven't. I just I only really ever write poems." And he said, "Well, I've got this idea for a." Um, a hair, a story about hairs. So the 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 legend is that you know back in five hundred years ago, when it was the all the witch trials were going off Shakespearean times, um, one of the things that they said that witches um, could turn into when they were shape shifting were hairs. And there was loads of stories about this, and it's kind of lots of folklore. It's you know a well known tradition. Um, you know, Dartmoor is very famous for it. Everywhere you go in Dartmoor, there's a three hairs motif above every pub, above every post office. Um, so, you know, he's, he's like, well, we, I'm putting something together for the folk singer Faye Heald, who's releasing an album called Hairspell. Um, it's not Hairspell, sorry, the album's called Rackline. The single was <laughs> called Hairspell. Um, I'm, I'm writing something with her and a few other great writers, Terry Windling and Sarah Hesketh. Um, and would you, would you be interested in writing it? So I gave it a go. Um, and it's actually in my book that it's part of my short story collection. Um, and it was put together as a, a trilogy called Hairspell. So my character, Elin, and the Hairs of Horsington Hill, which is my story that I wrote, is, is, is an audio drama as well. It was published by Mookie Chick magazine as well. Can't remember when. Sometime last year, anyway. Last year, anyway, um, yeah. End of the world. Yeah. So, so, that's, um, so that's how I started writing short stories. And uh, I kind of got the bug for it, really, and just um, carried on writing all through all through lockdowns and... And eventually had to kind of a collection to put together and sent it off to a publisher and it's it's coming out in November. Yeah, John, obviously just a little bit of it in the future. So now I found interesting too, you you sent me through your actual pitch for this, and I didn't realise this, but you were you're actually a big sci-fi girl, aren't you? Yeah. Yeah. And I didn't know that. I'm a big sci-fi fan myself, and I was looking at your influences on your book, and I love the original iRobot and that Asimov mm. I think it's fantastic it is and obviously Star Wars is Star Wars isn't it but I didn't realise you were a big fan of I'm just trying to find where I saw it now uh, yeah, I, I yeah, mean, yeah. X, X Machina was well we yeah. grew up with Star Wars didn't yeah. we so, yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah. I saw there was a Star Wars I think I was five in 1977 so I was old enough to admit, admit it now when I saw Empire Strikes Back was it 1980 I remember it because we saw it. The only film of time I've seen the film twice in two weeks, and the oh second, goodness. the well, second I time, yeah, I was only eight. <laughs> I was only eight. Second time I remember because my sister went along with me, and she she wasn't. I couldn't go the first time for some reason, but she wanted to go see the original Star Wars and Empire Strikes Back and back to back in the cinema. And I remember being sick as anything after halfway through the Empire Strikes Back. Oh, what a shame <laughs> to miss that. I, I know. Favorite one, the Empire Strikes Back. Yeah, definitely me as well. So <laughs> I know. As I said, it's just I love the fact when you mentioned Maurice stuff like X Machina as well. Because I only I only saw that last year during lockdown. I hadn't seen it. 
Well, I mean, because I teach media studies, mm. so into robot sci-fi, especially, um, I've, I've kind of, I sort of, one of the things I teach is kind of this idea of the fembot all the way back through, you know, to the original one, Maria, back in 1920, you know, the black and white Maria, you know, going through all the... Yeah. Oh, yeah, metamorphosis, just absolutely phenomenal, yeah. And then, you know, finishing up quite with quite modern ones like Scarlett Johansson's Her and, um, yeah, and Ex Machina as well. Alex Garland's Ex Machina. Yeah, there was a, the one came out last year, and I'm trying to remember the name of it now as well. Oh, yikes, my mind's gone blank. We saw one recently as well. Um, came out, just come out, went straight to streaming about um, a bloke that had um, brought his wife back to life as a robot. So I've got the name of it. Yeah. I'll get the name for you. Kind of Frankenstein sort of story. Yeah. Yeah, and, and then there's all the Japanese ones as well, you know, like the Ghost in the Machine and the anime ones. So I've cut, I've got like a, I suppose it was always waiting for me to write it. The problem I always found with it is I loved these stories, but they just weren't speaking for me. They were, I, I wanted to write a robot sci-fi, which told a different story so I didn't want this kind of fetishized fembot um and I didn't want it I, I wanted it to be because these robots they are always kind of a metaphor for the marginalized in society somehow and in many ways they're better than us and in other ways they're in complete servitude as well and they're yeah. always they're always a metaphor for how we treat people that we seem see as lesser in society um you know the people on the fringes or the people who just don't have the set enough rights like other people do yeah and as a group um, so they're always a metaphor for that and i just I, I i love the exploration of that in these or in all these sci-fi films but i always felt that um the story i wanted to tell is always missing from it the narratives that i think are important and yeah yeah and um i was watching it what what spurred me on to do it was a ted talk actually and it was i'm going to say her name wrong now chimamanda ngozi adichie the actress the actor holly she's now a hollywood actor you know she's in black panther and massive films now but uh, she she gave a ted talk on the danger of a single story and she said as an african she'd always heard loads of narratives about America, white America, but Americans had only heard one or two narratives about Africa. And she said in that TED talk, you need to write the story that you want to read. If, you, if stories are not speaking for you, you need to write the one that speaks for you. Um, and th that's, why, that's why I wanted to write it because I love robot sci-fi, um, but none of them were putting a story across that I felt was was right. It was it, they're, they're missing so much um, that they could be saying about women by just showing, you know, a really hypersexualized robot who's not even female. It's <laughs> a robot. Yeah, yeah. completely. I get you. I get you completely running about with it straight away. So, and yeah. it's obviously like this is led into your book itself now. The people who are interested, obviously, you've got you give it a slightly different name for your robots as well, didn't you? Calling it Igo. Yes. Yeah. Tell us about the tell us about the inspiration behind that because 
that's quite an interesting story. Why you went that went why you went down that path? It's got quite a lot of uh, backstory there that I go actually. So um, I think the earliest uh, the, it's from taken from the phrase there by there, but for the grace of God I go. Um, and so I think the earliest time that phrase was recognised was the 16th century, and it was applied by John Bradford to a group of prisoners who were about to be executed. And then I think it was it's in the Bible as well It's even earlier in the Bible from the Corinthians. Um, and that was about, you know, people being persecuted because because they believed in a certain God and they were persecuted. And um, in, in the Corinthians, it's all about, you know, you have to put yourself in their shoes, not see them as the other, have some human empathy for them. Um, so even as far back as that. And then more recently, there's a poem as well, um, Simborka by Simborka. And uh, her poem was about, um, it's like a list of all the situations uh, of Holocaust survivors. Um, and again, you know, putting them in the place of the other and saying, well, there, but for the grace of God, I go. It could be any one of us, you know, it's only circumstance that separates us from the other. Um, so it's, I suppose the I go is, is meant to invoke not really sympathy, but empathy and realizing with this, with the same, with the same, whatever terrible situation they're in, we're no different to them. Yeah. Yeah. And no, I agree completely on that. It's, you've really nailed this book down really well, because obviously I've, I've managed to read it before. So it's, it's a fascinating book. So obviously we should be telling people what the book's called, shouldn't we next, really? <laughs> we bought the title of it. <laughs> Typical me and you, like we go around the houses before we get there. So now the book itself, it's obviously called Bonds. And it's a collection of four short stories. Now, before we go into each story, Sarah, do you think you should tell people about the link why it's called Bonds, first of all, and how the story, why Bonds, before we start? Um, yes, so uh, going back to that idea of the narrative I want to read, uh, I can't see it in many places. Um, the, one that I, the one that I want to read is about attachment theory. Um, and I don't see it in any narratives at all. Well, hardly any. The title Bonds, so the reason why I've chosen the title Bonds is um, because the, all of the stories are connected through the theme of attachment theory. So um, the idea of attachment theory is that if, uh, if you are well attached to your primary caregiver in your most formative years as an infant and as a small child, you're probably going to grow up to be okay. And if your attachment is damaged or broken in some way, or it, it can't be repaired quickly enough, if, if there is some sort of separation or something like that, or just if the attachment isn't strong enough um, for whatever reason, then later on down the line, that infant is probably going to have attachment disorders. Um, which can lead to all kinds of problems in life. You know, the obvious one is their relationships and how they bond with other people, but it can also lead to, you know, problems with addiction and neurosis and all kinds of, all kinds of suffering. Um, that starts very early on when, when you're the most vulnerable, when you're the most smallest, you need those secure attachments. And um, what I have felt personally since becoming a parent 
is that our society is just intent on separating children too early from those attachments that they need. Um, you know, we're told to expect them to sleep on their own when they're not developmentally ready. We're told to wean them before they're ready. And, all, and uh, you know, they sent this, especially in our country, they're sent to school far younger than they are in other countries. The expectations on them um, are not in line with, you know, biological norms. So um, the World Health Organization, for example, says that children should uh, ideally be breastfed till they're at least two, two years really? old. Wow. Okay. Um, yeah. And uh, if you left them onto their own devices, they would naturally wean at around four years old. And that is the norm when people are left alone, you know, to, <laughs> to their own devices. But, uh, you know, we have um, profit making formula companies. We have corporations that want to take that work that women are doing importantly for their own children and put them back in the workplace, which, you know, um, I, I, I am a big advocator of a 24 month maternity leave so that you can meet that developmental milestone for your child if, if that's what they're biologically primed to need as mammals um so uh, all of that is tied in with my stories about bonds and it's all about how we are as a society we're expected to break those bonds very early on and it means that there are problems down the line for all of us if we have a whole society of people that are not attached properly that have attachment disorders where does that leave us in the future um what what will society be like if if we're all kind of wrenched away from from our primary attachments too early so that that's that's what they're all exploring in their own way all the four separate stories yeah. they are different in genre so this one's a sci-fi but i've also got a surrealist kafka-esque tragedy comedy in there yeah you have it's, it's, it's all very very different stories and all in different places as well so so i think we should really tell people tell give give people an idea what other four stories are about now you had the first one i'm gonna get the pronunciation wrong with this it's machina x dex have i got that right machina x no one there then <laughs> no one <near. laughs> that's the robot one yeah yeah that's i got a lot of the undertones in the middle east to that story it was um it was the longest piece of the, of the four. But where, yeah. what made you write this one first of all? Then, um, so yeah, it is. It is the Middle East. So it's um, it's kind of a Abu Dhabi in the future, far off in the future, about a hundred years or so, a bit bit more. Um, and uh, it's set in a time where um, society as we know it now um, has gone. It's finished. There's been kind of you know a global climate disaster and the few people that are left have managed to kind of colonize these cities that were in the deserts because they were already built to withstand kind of heat and um, and because they're deserted they're they're ready to move in and use um, so that's the setting um, and it, within this uh, futuristic world there are igos from the old world sort of in between our time and and the time that the story set in these igos have come into into play, and they're they're really kind of just used for domestic, um, like looking after children. They're like an au pair most of the time, and kind of just menial duties, that kind of thing. Um, yeah, brilliant. So they exist in that time as well. 
Okay, then he went to the second story, somewhere a lot more local, basically, because obviously people don't know, because obviously we're both Manchester-based, but the second yeah. one, you're in Bagley Brook, which, if my memory is correct, that's right on the outskirts of Wivenshaw. Is that the same place we're talking about here? Or something else? Yes, yes, yeah. I, I wrote this one because um, because we went we went to on holiday to Cornwall, and Cornwall is really interesting because every single street corner, every single you know little place that you go and visit has got some ogre attached to it, or some selkie, or some you know crazy mythical creature. And there was there was nothing around here. So at the beginning of lockdown, I was going on walks with my kids, like everyone was, and they were like, "Why don't we have any stories? Where we live so boring." And I, I honestly looked like I spent a long time on Google looking for these kind of mythical creatures that might be tied up with where we live. And there, there was nothing. Um, the only thing I could find was about a, a water witch who um, around Lancashire in the northwest is known as Ginny Greenteeth. And in uh, sort of the northeast is known as Peg Powler. Um, and she is, I guess she's like a cautionary uh, fairy tale that they used to tell to children, stop them playing near the water and drowning. Um, so I thought, well, we keep going to this brook. <laughs> so um, I'll, I'll write it about this brook and, and then it might, uh, it might actually stop them getting too close to it as well. It might help me out. <laughs> um, you use, you use I, a language in the second story is really different to the first one as well it is. Yeah, well, I, I spent, I also spent a really long time looking up kind of ancient Cheshire dialect. So a lot of the language I'm using in it is, you know, it's about four or five hundred years old. So I've, I've used the, the main character in it is, um, they used to call them the cunning women. So if you, so 500 years ago in Britain, um, the cunning women were, you know, they were midwives and they knew how to use herbs and things to cure little ailments and uh, and um so it, as long as they were in people's good books they were cunning women as soon as they fell out with someone they'd be accused of witchcraft and oh, <laughs> yeah. executed tortured and executed oh, um, damn, yeah. this is a local cunning woman she's she's the main character um and it's set kind of in cheshire next to bagley brook and so a lot of the language is, is really really old cheshire dialect I loved reading it, and because I, I know a bit about the old dialect from my dad. My dad's got a massive interest in that side of things, and for what I could see, I think if I showed it him, he wouldn't moan too much over your use of it. And I know what my dad's like for that sort of thing. He's a then bit. Do you recognise some of it then? Bits of it, bits of it. It's, it's more my dad's side, really, don't you? It looked like it. It's fairly genuine to me. Uh, people are wondering. Um, Somebody sent the, the proof copy of the book to me a bit late, so I've not much time. I don't normally to go through it, but yeah, yeah, yeah. From what I could see, it looked like it was, it was it was damn accurate. So yeah, it's a good, great story. I really enjoyed it. Fantastic, thank you. Yeah. Right, okay. The third story after that, and this was again was quite a different story. When the fledging fledgling. Fledgling heart. Yeah, fledgling heart. I love the way you used the date. You put dates on this one. You did. It's like it was it was quite different again in tone it was, but where did the fluttering heart come from? Yeah, so this this is I guess it's diarized. So you know, this is the most um modern one, I suppose. Um this this is my uh 
tragic comedy, a surrealist tragic comedy, I suppose you would call it. So the the idea of fledgling hearts, so how does it tie in with attachments? Um, I, I wasn't just, I was looking at how people juggle um, when they have a responsibility or when they have a tie to something that um, gets in the way of how they function every day. How do they cope with that at work and in their day-to-day relationships with people and their partners and their friends? Um, how do you suddenly juggle this enormous uh, responsibility that you have um, and that you could never um, ditch? You could never turn your back on it. So the premise of the book is that uh, the story is there's a very normal kind of 20, 21 type woman. Um, and she's one day her heart just bursts out of her chest and she's got to carry it around and deal with it being outside her body. And um, that that's the premise of the story. So it starts off in quite a surrealist way. But the, the further it goes on, the more, the more you just kind of accept that's, that's what's happened and what the practical, what are the practicalities around that? How do you deal with that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. it is a bit. It's, it was, I found that story, obviously the second one was more like hardly folklore, your first one was a real sci-fi. I found this the most surreal of the three stories to this point I had, certainly. I mean, very enjoyable, so yeah. Now, what you caught me out on was we went to the fourth story, the concluding one, and I think you lived on this area at one point, if my memory is correct. It's Horsham Hill. Horsham Hill, yeah. yeah. that's Ealing Way, if my memory is correct, in London, yeah, isn't it? that's where I'm from, yeah. Yeah, I thought you were, I thought you were driven that way. That's yeah. why, so. So what drew you to write about this? I'm guessing this is another folklore story, is it? The Hairs of Horsham Hill. Yeah, so this this was the one that I was prompted to write it by Chris Gregory, who um, runs the Alternative Stories fake reality so it was as part of the hairspell trilogy and it was um one of the characters elin it's her story um, ah right yeah that explains why i know yeah, yeah yeah so this is about a year before uh not a year it's a few months before hair hairspell happens so um it's it's kind of like a prequel to hairspell yeah yeah of course so straight away so was this all out of the four stories the first one i got wrote then was it Sorry, could you say that again? Sorry, yeah. Out of the four stories, was this the first one that got wrote then, was it? Yes, yeah. Right, yeah, yeah. So um, it's, it's, it begins on the first day of lockdown, on the 20th of March. Um, and that's that's because that's when I that's when I started writing you know it was and I was I was very homesick at the time I, have, I hadn't been home we were about to go back to London to see uh, you know grandparents and everything and this was one of the things we were going to do we we're going to walk around Horsington Hill because I haven't been there for a, a year and um and then lockdown happened and you know we couldn't go anywhere and but we were going on nature walks so I think a lot of that comes out as well in this in this story you know it's a, it's a lot about you know, things are hard things are tough but just spending a bit of time somewhere pretty outside just helps so much and I, I I was definitely feeling that so I think it came across in the story yeah I've really I've really enjoyed all four all stories and it's certainly they're four very varied stories to people interested in reading this book and I recommend it straight away because it is a really varied book <laughs> and it's but it's, it feels like they're all tied together what he said so straight away and it's all been it's been well thought out straight away you can see that because I know you're well enough by now with that so but um okay now 
Officer, then, now with this obviously been the four stories put together, then was there any other plans to be more stories, or, or, or was it always going to be four stories? This book, do you think? Um, well, what I found was I didn't really have a plan, and I think, like most writers, you end up writing the same story again and again and again in different ways. And this, the, this um, theme of attachments, um, is I almost every poem I've written is covering it somehow. Hmm. Um, and uh, it wasn't hard to group them as a collection and uh, to kind of say, well, that's the theme. That's what they're all about. They might be very different genres, but that's what they're all about. Um, they're all about, you know, this a wrench from an attachment that you need um, and that somebody else needs from you too. Um, and they're, they're, all the stories cover that somehow. Um, yeah. So it, it wasn't hard to put them together as a, a, a collection, but I, I wasn't writing them with a plan as a collection. It's just it just so happened that I had uh, four, I had about six of them, and um, I just picked the four that I thought reflected that theme the most, and I put them together in a manuscript to send off. But it's I the best way. That's why not, because they come na comes natural, doesn't it? So you've done it, and the pieces have come together naturally. So yeah. I think that's often the best way that you've not had to force it too much, and that's the best way for me. Yeah. Okay, well, now, obviously, people who are interested, the book will be out in November, and dates to follow. And I know Sarah is also doing a launch in Manchester. Obviously, it, hopefully this has been a post-COVID world. <laughs> Fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. Obviously, the way things are going at the moment, we don't we don't know what's going to happen from week to week in this world at the moment. So, well, fingers crossed. If it's in a post-COVID world, I'm definitely going to be there for that. So, so Sarah, if people want to find out more about you, where are the best going, first of all? Uh, so this book will be out with Cab Publishing. Um, so they're like a small uh, indie press. Um, so they're... they're um, doing this book but um, if you wanted to see any poems it, I'm on social media I'm on Insta Twitter and Facebook so it's Sarah Coleno poetry and um, yeah I've, I mean, you can you can find sort of links to what I've written on, on those places I should have asked you I'm just a question off here so we'll do this as a conclusion question then do you have any sort of ideas where you'd like you writing to go after this then at the moment um, well, I'm working on a much longer story, so it'll probably, probably be book length on its own, I would think, by the time it's finished. So that's my, I suppose that's my next thing. Um, Watch your space. That's all yeah, we, that's <laughs> yeah, I'm not going to ask you for any specific spoilers. It's not fair to ask you that, so, but definitely not going to love it. As I said, so hopefully we'll be able to have the launch cheering you on, right? So, <laughs> so. Yeah, fingers crossed. Yeah, fingers crossed now. Everyone's wondering, we're going to take a quick break now and let Sarah get composed. I'm going to go and get our special guest who's going to come and listen to Sarah with us. And then, but you're going to read out a few, you're going to read out some little bits of extracts, aren't you, from one or two of the pieces, aren't you? So, yeah, yeah, I'll read, yes. I'll just read out a little bit from each one. Sounds yeah. good to me. Okay, hang around, everybody. I love Sarah's work, she's extraordinary. See you on. Thank you, Andy. Thank you. Spoken. Hi guys. Okay, I'm still here with Sarah, and we've got hopefully a special guest to us. Who's the special guest? I'm just the audience. And who's the audience? Amanda. Amanda, the boss, right? So the boss is going to be listening here because she's known Sarah as long as I have. So, okay, Sarah, I know you're going to do some extracts, aren't you? So, over to you. 
Okay, so this is an extract from uh, Machina Exodus, um, and it's the beginning of Sirona's story, so it's, it's her narrative. My office has a glorious vista. The aspect is a dazzling panorama stretching over the university campus and Sadiat district in the north, a glittering crop of upward slicing crystalline stalagmite skyscrapers. Beyond the Dasban periphery to the west, the spectacle reveals the temperature disparity outside of our ecodome as the burning air ripples visibly upwards from the dahashed desert's baked crust, where the vehicles of Savak troops scuttle in the heat like beetles. Intermittently, spray drones carry native flora seeds of athlay and rymph to germinate in whatever is left of the wetlands to the southeast beyond. My home in Yazland is to the south, separated from nearby districts by vast expanses of fat, flat freeways built by the old order slaves. Over to the east is perhaps the most stirring display, the smaller, the smaller ecodome, affectionately dubbed Noah's Ark, which cuts resplendently over the old camel race course out into the Persian Gulf. As the name would suggest, Noah's Ark is a climate controlled nature reserve housing among other wonders, a cultivated Arctic, Amazon and a marine preservation. My sweetest memory as a small girl is cheering at the green galas as more insects are released from Noah's Ark each winter when the temperatures are low enough. They fly far beyond our ecodome and citadel to pollinate and reignite the Earth's biodiversity as the temperature continues to drop each year. Brilliant, brilliant. Great start, that one. Okay, on to number two then now, isn't it? So I'm, not, I'm not even going to comment because that last time I tell people, don't buy the book. <laughs> Uh, so the second one is from The Legend of Bagley Brook um, and it's uh, it's at the point where Omer is with her grandson and he's begging her to tell him a bedtime story. He likes scary stories um, so she um, tells him the, the legend of Peg Powler. Um, right, so uh, tell me a nominee tale, tall tale Omer. A smuggler's tale, he asked. In recent nights, Omer had with some trepidation, given the hatchling's tender age, recounted terrifying old maritime stories, passed along the hidden Wallasey tunnels and taverns along the Mersey's river banks. Still, the boy's morbid fascination with such ordeals led him to beg her each night for another. Even as Omer cushioned her hatchling in an embrace, she could not avoid the foreboding she felt so acutely with each night's request. The child was gauby soft with sweetness, and so with angst and misgiving she began her yarn. The Fremfolk sailors who traversed the Great Orm regaled accounts of an old submerged church bell tolling out a cloudy disturbance from under the sea. It travelled to the coasts of North Wales, recited in the alehouses of the Hoylake beaches and the mizzled banks of the Mersey, till it trickled along the eye of our own Bagley Brook. The tale of old Peg Powler. Homer, who is Peg Powler? The, cat, the hatchling asked. 
and Omer dreaded his innocent calfish girl, knowing he would be most afeard of the monster. Still, it would keep him on the safer hassock grasses and away from the moiling mismaze of the water's rund ledge, where he was prone to absent-mindedly lopping. Why, she's my own bet noir, lad, Omer replied. Then she sang sweet and low a song of an old adversary who had made to snatch each of her grandsons at least once during their loomist years. Peg is Gethian's Merweth, dividing land and sea. She's Grendel's vengeful Mordor, ideas the Valkyrie. Peg Paula, high green ghostess with crown of tresses green, her ribboned reeds and lacing weeds and manacles unseen. With skin of frog and fingers webbed, she rides a log half sunk, her, her skin's disguised in garments, sewn off algae and gunk. Peg tangles wading ankles from shallows to the deep, her ginny green teeth dragging catches silently to sleep. The surface scum is old Peg's cream to warn of the child drowner. You'll know her by the water's froth, the suds of old Peg Powler. Brilliant. Bit scary that one. <laughs> Slightly. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, right. So the the next one I've got is uh, the beginning of Fledgling Heart. So it's not a plot spoiler because it's right at the start when this big action happens in media res. So the Fledgling Heart, Tuesday, sixth of November, twenty eighteen. It was the early hours when my heart fell out. I had taken myself off to bed around 7pm, feeling a trifle off colour, but not suspecting anything so serious. Quietly, so as not to wake Paul, I crept downstairs. As I rummaged around the back of the fridge, hunting for some gaviscon, a burning line seared vertically somewhere between my navel and my chin. I tore open my nightshirt, as to my horror, a deep red welted streak appeared, like an ugly slug-like stretch mark, and rapidly began to split into a tear. It's so beyond what I can begin to understand, I'm going to try and write it down. Maybe it will stop me going mad. Honestly, looking back, I couldn't say now whether I actually heard a rip, or if this is my mind's attempt to embody the pain. A jarring, gruff unexpected rupture. Oh, it was bitter to the sound of a pair of jeans ripped in January after too many mince pies. <laughs> Underneath my cracking ribs pulsed a thunder. The thudding of it shook my whole torso, building in tempo, until finally my heart burst forth from the gash in my chest and performed a bouncing commando roll onto the kitchen tiles, five feet away. It made quite a grisly mess, I can tell you. Incredibly, my first thought was how I could hope to clean it all up. Then my full attention turned to the pitiful thing, and hand on heart, if I still had one, I can truthfully swear this is where my full attention has been ever since. Brilliant. and pulsing, its tender meats exposed to germs and cold, veins and tentacles flayed around distressingly, searching out the nervous system which had only just ejected it. Instinctively, I rushed to my heart, scooped the thing up, but beyond instinct, I'm not sure what I was doing at all. The fact that I had survived an injury which should have killed me had not yet dawned on me. Brilliant. I, I cut you off a little bit in a second. I thought you thought you paused and that was it then. <laughs> you never said brilliant about 30 seconds ago. 
I think you enjoyed it on the Manda there, didn't that you? That was my favourite. Yeah, I knew, I knew Manda would like that one then, because yeah, the core elements in it. Anyone knows Manda, we know you're like, you go also, no, it's brilliant, no, it's great stuff all around. So, so okay, we'll call the last one now, aren't we? About, about your old neck of the woods, Ealing now. Uh, yeah, that's right, yeah. So this is the hairs of Porsington Hill. So this is at the point where um, Elin has, uh, she's, her phone's been bothering her for various reasons and she's finished for work. It's the last day of lockdown and she, she's decided she's um, not going to go home. She's going to take a walk around Horsenden Hill in the woods and, and kind of clear her head a bit. So as if to dissuade her from her intentions for seclusion, Elaine's handbag vibrated and alert. Irritation turned to surprise as she remembered she had switched her phone to flight mode Receiving notifications was impossible. Perplexed, Elin stopped walking, put her backpack down and fished around in her handbag to make sure she would not be disturbed again. Eerily, her device did indeed appear to be where she left it. Even odder still was a rogue text message which had managed to intrude in spite of her precautions. Without unlocking her phone to unleash the invasive text, Elin could only see the first character of the message, a ghostly stenciled silhouette of a rabbit or a hare. Curiosity won, and Elin followed the white rabbit down the hole. I know more about hares than you can ever imagine. I can show you how that feels. I can answer your questions and help with your labors. RSVP for details. Spam, Elin immediately said out loud but a deep movement within her had shifted subtly and it caviled at her silently until Elin had to read the proposal again. Who is this? How do they know about my environmental writing or about my labors? Elin switched the phone off. In spite of the backpack's weight, she decided not to head straight home. The evenings had recently turned brighter and she never normally returned from work so early. Instead, Elin walked away from the albatross of labels and debt in her rented apartment and headed along Whitton Avenue East to turn left into Whitler's Woods to mull over the mystifying invitation. Under those ancient oaks, the oppressive containment of the tube wisped up into the rustling cool of afternoon leaves following its own willow. Her backpack felt lighter, her lungs filled with the ground's earthy musk, permeating up through the London clay and Dollis Hill gravel. Swishing canopies of fresh green brushed clear the air. Superb, superb. Oh, bravo, bravo, was it saying? <laughs> Thanks, Sarah. Now, obviously, just to clarify, people are interested. You said before, they can pick up the book from the publishers, can't they? Will it also be available on all good and evil book booksellers as well? For example, Amazon. Am I allowed to say Amazon? Yeah, yeah, yeah. it will be. I'm not bothered. Yeah. Go for it. <laughs> Amazon, all the usual places. Check it out, definitely. So brilliant. Now, I think hang around, Clara. People went to their website and got it directly, but yeah, yeah I think. Of course, yeah, of course, yeah. It helps them out more, doesn't it? So definitely with that. So hang around, Sarah. I need to quit with your mic anyway. So. Thank you, Amanda, for tuning in to me. I come here or listen. And thank you again, Sarah. It's been a pleasure. Hopefully, we can get to see you in this post. Hopefully, we can see you at your launch coming up shortly, right, in person. So, <laughs> this is Andy M. Signing out. So, stay safe, guys and girls. See you all soon. Spoken later.